Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the sixth episode of Pop Culture Quorum Deo. We hope that you've had a chance to listen through some, if not all, of the first five episodes of our podcast. If you have, and you have any thoughts at all, positive or negative, we would love to hear from you. Hit us up. Uh, you can contact us through our website at pccdpod.com or at Twitter. Again, pccdpod there. Same deal for the Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to reach out uh, to us by leaving a five-star or any star review on iTunes, we would also be very appreciative of that. Those reviews help other people who may be interested in the podcast find us. And so you would be helping us even as you gave us your feedback. Uh, today, I'm here with Jared, and we're going to discuss Christopher Nolan's latest masterpiece, Dunkirk. Uh, that's available, I know for sure, at Redbox, because that's how I went and found it. Many of you saw it in the theater, and I've been told that IMAX is the preferred way to see this. Whatever mm. way you choose to consume this movie, we hope that this discussion of the movie from the perspective of God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ will aid your appreciation of this work of art and also the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So with all that said, Jared, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. Had a had a good week. Uh, didn't have snow apocalypse like we thought we were going to have. Ended up with like half an inch, which still kind of keeps keeps everyone inside. Yeah, I guarantee you Walmart was still emptied of bread and milk, though. <laughs> it is, yeah. Even Dollar Store, man. Even Dollar Store. Oh, yeah. Well, we are frosty and not defeated nonetheless, right? So we are <laughs> pressing on uh, on the podcast into uh, into this really beautiful movie, or at least that's what I thought about it. We've not talked about it off air. Just general thoughts on the experience of watching this movie, Jared? Oh, I thought it was an amazing story. I mean, it's based on based on history, and from what I understand, it's it's pretty true to the uh, history of it. I really I really enjoyed. It. I mean, you're you're on edge the whole time. I mean, it's like it's like being in a war scene. You're empathetic for the Allied soldiers and how they're like fishing a barrel for the Germans that are flying over. I mean, it's just it's terrifying, really. Yeah, it's it's an amazing ability that a good filmmaker has, and Nolan it certainly belongs in that category to take you into a place that you could never physically visit. You know, in an emotional space. Uh, excuse me, an emotional space that otherwise you wouldn't have have entered into. He's he's incredible, man. I, I don't know of a better working director right now. Mm-hmm. Everything he puts out, I'm just captivated by. Oh yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, Jared mentioned this is obviously a historical movie, a historical war movie. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, this film captures the retreat and evacuation of British, French, and Scottish forces from the Battle of France during the Second World War from May 26th to June 4th of 1940. As Jared mentioned, you, you, you drop into this world on a beachfront, and it's just uh, massive numbers of soldiers. I think at one point they mentioned it's 400,000 people on that beach gathered up hoping for a ride a very short distance across the English Channel in order to escape a, a rapidly advancing Nazi army. And that gives you all the tension <laughs> that is needed to start telling a story that, as Jared mentioned, just wraps you up from the very beginning. A few things I would point out that anybody who watches this movie is going to see immediately. This is an incredibly arresting visual uh, uh, story. So I, I guess probably I compare every war movie against Saving Private Ryan. And I don't know that I have been you know grabbed by the lapels as hard by a, a war movie since Saving Private Ryan uh, as I was by this film. I think this this film has a particular strength in showing a realistic air battle. You know, I, I felt like I was with Tom Hardy in the seat of his airplane. I felt like, you know, it was an impossible uh, task to locate this tiny little airplane that is trying to get behind me and shoot me down. You know, I just thought, how do these guys ever do anything defensive in the constraints of this cockpit? And the the, the story is built on people, but it's built on people in a way that doesn't make use of a lot of dialogue. That's one of the unique features of this movie. You get 
a whole lot of plot accomplished long before anybody says anything much at all. And and for the rest of the movie, there's just not a lot of talking, which really sets this thing apart from a number of films that uh, that I've seen. Anything else you want to note there, Jared? I mean, they're, the fellas are pinned down. You know, the allies are pinned down. They're severely outnumbered, and they're they're hoping for a uh, a rescue attempt. And so they're they're basically retreating. So this is it's a story of a battle that the allies lost against the Nazis, and they're in Dunkirk, France, and so they're trying to get back over to Britain and escape, but the problem is they don't have enough boats that can actually get into the harbor that are small enough to rescue everyone, and so they're having to kind of wait this out and survive until the rescue can get there. And so the, the goal the goal in the movie is basically to stay alive until the, uh, not reinforcements, but the rescue can get them. Yeah, absolutely. And you, as we've already mentioned, you feel like you're sitting there with them. The, the one other feature of this world and the way that Nolan is telling this story that I want to highlight, and this is usual for Nolan, uh, except maybe in his film Interstellar, depending on how you interpret that. But Nolan's world, uh, if if that's the world that Batman lives in, or if that's the world that you know the the soldiers of Dunkirk live in, it is a religion-free world. There's there's really no significant references to God. You know, you mentioned he took incredible pains to make sure that this movie was historically accurate, but you don't see these soldiers who are trapped on a beach. You don't see them praying. You don't see anybody mm-hmm. clutching a rosary. You don't see anyone, you know, kind of handling their, their cross necklace. The the only hint you get of even something potentially happening is uh, one of the officers as a German attack plane is bearing down on his location, closes his eyes, and you don't know if he's praying or if he's bracing for the worst, but that's, I mean, that's the only mm-hmm. time it even shows up. There's a reference at the very end to God, but it comes in the in the quote from Winston Churchill's famous speech about fighting them on the beaches and fighting them on the fields and whatnot. Nolan, for whatever reason, uh, there's a lot of speculation if you read online, but he, he just does not want a religious perspective in his films. And mm. a Christian watching this movie just needs mm. to account for that. And, and really, if uh, if you're watching it with someone and you're, and you're going to discuss the film, if this isn't on their radar, you might want to highlight it for them because it just gives you uh, an opportunity to talk either to a brother about, you know, how would your faith impact a moment like this, you know, where you're trapped, facing the end of your life, or if it's, you know, a, a neighbor, someone you want to engage with the gospel, it, it's an opportunity to raise the question of why does Nolan handle it this way? It, can we really say this is realistic uh, if these things are stripped out in a way that, that doesn't match what actually played out in history? So I think that element, yeah, at the very beginning gives you some stuff to to raise with someone who uh, is watching this movie with you or who you're discussing it with. Uh, Jared, what about conscience warning? There's very little to warn about in, in this movie. I mean, as far as a war movie, um, there's very little language. There's very little blood. There's little gore, but there is much. There are, there's a lot of death and there's a lot of scenes of terror. And if you if you have trouble with uh, anxiety, I mean, this may be a movie that I mean, you'll be anxious in this movie. You'll be anxious watching this movie. I mean, the music is set for that purpose. The scenes are set for that purpose. They want you to feel like you're an ally with a bunch of Nazis surrounding you with machine guns and planes dropping bombs on you. I mean, that's what the, the goal is. You're, they want you to feel that way. And you, you can't help. I mean, if you're watching the movie, you're going to feel at least some of that. And so you need to be aware of that. Um, but it, I mean, it's definitely worth seeing. It is a, a remarkable story of uh, rescue and the value of humanity and how love for your fellow man and your brothers. I mean, there's a lot of good. So I, I believe it's worth watching. One other issue of conscience that Dunkirk raises is the question of warfare itself. Throughout the history of the church, good, sincere believers who love Jesus and who are careful to study his 
word, have taken different positions, sometimes very uh, opposing positions, on the subject of whether or not Christians can participate in war. Is war a just endeavor that a Christian can engage in? You go back to the early church, uh, soldiers were told, basically you have to leave off being a soldier sometimes in order to come into the church. We obviously have the Anabaptist tradition that shuns uh, participation in society on numerous fronts, one of those in particular being uh, engaging in war. You have the story of Alvin C. York, who from a pacifist position uh, did not want to be a participant in a world war. And so we want to walk through the idea of just war as an answer to the question of whether or not Christians can participate in war, and even more broadly, how Christians could think through the possibility of just war. And just up front, Jared and I do believe that it is a God-honoring vocation to participate in soldiering, of which part of your time is clearly, uh, at least in potential, going to be used in the uh, act of warfare. And so with it in mind, I want to point you to a resource that is on the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission website. So you find that at ERLC.com. And probably the quickest way to find it is to put ERLC in along with the name of the author, which is Joe Carter, and then part of the title, which is Introduction to Just War Tradition. So the full title is A Brief Introduction to the Just War Tradition, Juice Odd Balloon by Joe Carter. And I'm going to read you a section from this article uh, to give you the gist, but point you back to Joe Carter for more reading. Carter says that there are six criteria that must be satisfied before entering war can be considered just. That first criteria is just cause. There must be a just and proper reason for going to war. Some of the justifiable reasons include self-defense, protecting the innocent, restoring human rights wrongly denied, and assisting an ally in their self-defense. The second criteria is proportionate cause. The good of going to war must outweigh the destruction and death that will be caused by warfare. In other words, going to war must prevent more evil and suffering than it is expected to cause. Third criteria, right intention. Our reasons and motives for engaging in warfare must be noble and in line with the ethic of Christian love. We go to war to right a wrong or restore a just peace, but not to restore our national pride or to seek revenge against an enemy. Number four, right authority. War can only be authorized by a legitimate governing authority. This means that it has to be a governing authority we would recognize as fitting the criteria of Romans 13. But it also means that the proper governing authority has actual sovereign authorization to engage in war. For example, the President of the United States has the proper authority to initiate warfare against Canada, while the Governor of North Dakota does not. 5. Reasonable chance of success. The initiation of warfare brings violence, pain, and suffering. This cost is only worth paying if it will, as we noted, outweigh the destruction and death that will be caused by warfare. If there is no reasonable chance of success in warfare, there can be no reasonable chance of using warfare to restore a just peace. And number six, last resort. Engaging in warfare must be the last reasonable and workable option for addressing problems. Any peaceful alternatives such as diplomacy or nonviolent political pressure must first be exhausted before going to war. Carter finishes up this way. All of these criteria must be met before a nation can be justified in going to war. However, because these criteria are open-ended and subject to interpretation, it is often a matter of contention among Christians about whether the standard has been satisfied before war has been declared or entered into. And guys, that's where I'm going to leave you as well. As I've mentioned, there are good people, thoughtful people, people who love Jesus and His Word on both sides of the issue. The church has not come to anything like a clear consensus here. We've given you our perspective as the host of this podcast, but we would also say that there are people we respect and admire that would tell us we're wrong, and we're certainly willing to hear from you uh, any pushback or feedback on the subject as well, because this is the kind of subject that thoughtful Christians should be giving their attention to and engaging in thoughtful, loving conversation about. The only thing I'll add to that is for those of you who, I don't know what age children you may consider 
showing this movie too, but uh, there's a scene where one of the characters goes out on the beach and uh, drops his pants to defecate on the beach there. You you just kind of see the side of his buttock and his thigh, but it's there. And uh, one of the things you would probably account for in a conscience warning. So just want to note that little detail there. You're welcome uh, for that mental image. <laughs> so guys, one of the things we're trying to be explicit about doing is walking through these films by asking questions. Uh, the people making these movies, writing them, directing them, producing them, they want to say something about the world. They want to communicate some idea to you. So we want to ask good questions to interact with that idea, both to to just receive communication, right? So we're spending our time watching these movies. Let's make good use of the time and try to hear what's being said. But we don't want to hear what's being said without filters up that help us to embrace what is good about the message of the film and reject what is evil. So one of the things we found helpful as a resource in uh, asking questions of the film and engaging with the creators are the questions that uh, Ted Turnow raises in his book, Popologetics. So we're going to walk explicitly through those questions with you, hopefully with us doing it and you listening to us doing it and doing it on your own. Uh, this will become second nature for us as believers as we interact with these artifacts of pop culture. So the first question that Turnow would have us ask is, what is the story? And he tells us to get it right when we ask that question. So really make efforts to understand the world in which the, the creator of the movie has placed you. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we use the categories of the Christian worldview. We use the categories of the narrative of the story that God is telling through history about his son, Jesus Christ. And those categories are creation. So what does this uh, story tell us about the way the world is? We use the category of fall. What does this world tell us uh, is wrong about the world? Either our world that we live in, if it's a historical piece like this, or the world that the uh, writer has created, if it's something that's you know much more uh, rooted in fiction. Uh, we ask, where will redemption come from? So if we've acknowledged that there is a creation and that there is something wrong in it in its fallenness, where's redemption going to come from? And then lastly, once redemption has come, what will the better world that redemption has produced look like? And so with that in mind, uh, Jared, if you don't mind, I'll jump into creation and, and hand the ball off to you for the fall. I'm going to actually quote from the plugged in review of this film. I think it does a really good job of laying out where we are when we enter the movie. So Dunkirk gives us a look at perhaps World War II's most desperate juncture, an ongoing engagement that spanned late May to early June of 1940. This was before Pearl Harbor, and the United States was officially neutral. The Soviet Union was allied with Germany at the moment. France was clearly overwhelmed once the fabled Mignon Line was breached. Britain was the only power left that could possibly stand up to Nazi Germany and its Axis allies, and it looked as if the army of Britain was done for. And so that's that's the beach you're dropped onto there, uh, the world as it exists, as Nolan tells us. So, Jared, where do you see the effects of the fall in this world? Um, obviously, the there's a clear good and a clear evil. I'm just like there is in, I mean, in, in World War II. Um, the Nazis are obviously the evil. The Allies are um, the good. Um, they're severely outnumbered, pinned down. Um, there's there's many wounded, and there are some examples of even evil in in the historical uh, record as well, where you have some soldiers who are so worried about their own skin that they're willing to let their brothers die. They're willing to, you know, they're looking out for themselves, some of them. But, you know, the goal is to stay alive. And for the most part, these uh, these soldiers, these Allies soldiers are trying to keep not only themselves alive, but all the Allies alive. I mean, and, and it's an amazing as far as redemption. You know, you have these three planes that are having to travel a long distance to come and try to fight these Nazi bombers that are dropping bombs on these Allies on the beach. And so they're, they're worried they're going to run out of gas. And it gets to the point where they know they're going to run out of gas and they don't care. They know they're going to crash, but they're willing to lay down their lives to protect their brothers on the beach. And then you have a uh, a father and a son who are over in Britain who know we're 
Dunkirky is and know that there's this big battle going on. So they get in their yacht. And so th- these are not soldiers. This is a father and a son. And uh, we learned that he, one of his other sons had actually been in the military. I don't believe he was fighting. He wasn't fighting in Dunkirk. But that, but they go and actually they're going to go and try to rescue, make a rescue attempt and save as many soldiers as they can. I mean, you talk about gutsy and bravery for someone who's not been trained a soldier to just get in a boat and say, I'm going to go save as many of my, my uh, kinsmen as, as much as I can. I mean, I, there, so there's a lot of uh, redeem, redemption in this movie. And there is there is fall as well, but there's a clear, there's a distinct evil and a distinct good. And it, there's a lot about the value of humanity in this movie, I believe. Yeah, I think for me, maybe I was more aware of the, the fallenness in this movie, or at least I was struck by it. Maybe you meet these guys that you know you're going to root for, right? Like th- there's this opening scene where there's a group of soldiers just peacefully walking through town. Now, of course, they're soldiers in a, in a wartime environment, so it's not like they're civilians, but they're they're up to no harm. And then they're just gunned down uh, in the back in the most cowardly fashion. One of them survives. He makes it out to the beach. And immediately his integrity is compromised. They He meets up with a guy who's burying another soldier. We learn later to steal his identity. And then the two of them go find a wounded person and pretend to be you know military medics in order to get on a hospital ship to to get out of the uh, to get out of the Dunkirk environment as quickly as possible. Uh, they're told to get off the ship. They disobey orders. They climb down. They hide out, looking for a chance to jump on the next boat that shows up. Now, good happens there. Uh, I think that's Tommy and Gibson who are the first two people we meet. They they rescue Alex from being crushed to death by an incoming ship or a ship that's I think cut loose. But then later on, that trio meets up with a group of Scottish soldiers. They go hide out in a, a Dutch ship, hoping to be liberated with that ship. Uh, once the tide comes in, they start taking fire, and all of a sudden, they're going to kick Gibson out because he's French rather than British. And if Alex makes too much of a fuss about it, they're going to kick him out too, since he's not part of their regiment. And it, it made me think, honestly, of uh, Episode 5, covering the thing where selfishness begins to pervert group dynamics. Now, thankfully, selfishness isn't the only dynamic, but man, you see the tendrils of self-interest uh, really reach up and grab hold of these guys' hearts pretty quickly, and it, and it stays uh, one of the themes throughout the rest of the movie. Mm. I'd also just point out that redemption comes from being able to reach home. That's a deeply, deeply Christian scene. Um, and then, mm-hmm. thankfully, you know, spoiler alert, the men are delivered, and they're received well back at home, and they're able to uh, kind of renew their efforts to oppose evil again. So, Jared, let's move in then to question number two. So, where am I? We want to see the style and shape of the imaginary world. And you, you talked earlier about uh, the way that good is going to come into this into this scene. We've talked about these three pilots who are going to give air support to the Allied forces. We've talked about Mr. Dawson, right? That was his name. Mr. Dawson, who's going to take his boat across the channel. And he kind of stands in for all these civilians who are going to eventually show up in Dunkirk. Uh, one of the things that I had sent you in email is that because this is a very godless world, not in the moral sense, but in the sense of an awareness of his presence, uh, this movie, am I right in, in saying that this movie depends on deliverance solely from the skill and bravery and willingness of men. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is uh, probably the most fictitious part. Now, we'll, we can get into that later, um, but um, but I think that that is, the, that is the idol. Yeah, so let's just run through real quick kind of the identifying marks of that idol. Um, one of the questions here is basically with the skill of the allies in coordinating a retreat overcome the skill of their enemies in preventing that retreat. So you've got carrier ships full of men versus U-boats and their torpedoes. You've got, as you mentioned, Ferrier and his group of Royal Air Force uh, 
Patriots versus these dive bombing German uh, attack planes. You've got the question of whether or not the military and civilian fleet that's crossing the English Channel, uh, will they survive those Nazi attacks uh, or will they be sunk? And then the question of will the, will the men aid one another or embrace a survival at all costs mentality? And that's it. There's no recourse to God's intervention, which, as we've already noted, is deeply false. Uh, with all that said, you want to take us through question number three, what's good, true, and awesome here, and, and help us to see common grace, Jared? Sure, sure. I, I think that this is an accurate depiction of war. Now, I've never been in war, but I assume um, that this is what war is like, um, that it is a fearful, I mean, it is a almost like hell hell on earth. I mean, it it's, forces you to feel fear as the Germans bear down on the Allies, and you know, the, you're forced to sit in terror as you watch, you know, your kinsmen survive by the skin of their teeth against these insurmountable odds. Um, I think the movie gets bravery right. Uh, evil must be opposed. Good must be rescued, even if it means we die. And I think you've mentioned this in, in another episode, that bravery is not the absence of fear, but it's standing against evil when you are afraid. And I, I think that um, there are clear examples of that in this movie, like Mr. Dawson and his son, as I, as I mentioned earlier. You know, they're not soldiers, but they're headed to Dunkirk to rescue as many soldiers as possible, even though they've just got a small uh, ship, a small yacht, and uh, they're willing to risk their lives to save them. And the pilot are headed again to basically it would be called like a suicide mission where, you know, you know, you pretty much assume that you're not going to make it back. And they're they're running out of gas. They know they're going to crash. You know, I, I mean, hitting that ocean is like hitting concrete. You know, it's the same as hitting the ground. But they're willing to perish in order to rescue their brothers. And I think that the movie, there's there's points of the greater good here, um, like the when the ship, the ship that is carrying the wounded, when it starts to sink and one of the generals um, yells to make the ship go out further to where. So he, he's thinking, you know, do I lose these hundred men? And and if you know, because if the ship sinks right there where it is, no other boats are going to be able to get in to rescue the three hundred and fifty thousand men that are probably left on the island at that time. So he has to make a choice between hundreds versus thousands. And I think that's a, a helpful uh, ethical question, you know, uh, for Christians in particular to think biblically, because not everything's cut and dry. I mean, when you look at the Bible, how much is contained therein and the principles that are contained therein, and then you think of how, you know, the Bible seems like a big book, but when you think of every decision that you have to make in life, you know, the Bible can seem rather a small book then, because there's not thou shalt or thou shalt not about every single minute decision or even big decisions. But instead, there are principles, and sometimes you have two principles that you have to weigh against each other, and you have to make an ethical uh, decision. And I think that he got that right. He had to choose hundreds, of, saving hundreds of thousands of men over potentially hundreds of men. God save me from ever having to make that choice, right? I mean, that's the other side of this. You mm-hmm. you get the you get the opportunity to make a meaningful choice. You're not just a puppet on the string. You're given lots of resources in Scripture to make that decision well, but you're told to make a meaningful choice, and you have to live with the consequences on the far side. You know, that's a that's a tough calling. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, I hope I never have to make decisions like that. But soldiers, Allied soldiers, and American um, soldiers, generals have have had to make decisions like that. And our, uh, I mean, our our leaders in our country have to make decisions like that. Um, I appreciate how Nolan tells a story of men who are, you know, having to make these hard choices that you've just talked about, uh, but that they they regularly choose the good of their neighbor, maybe not over their own good, but at least in a way that imperils their good. So uh, there's a there's a ship carrying soldiers out across the port. They're celebrating and they're you know they're eating like toast and marmalade because they're, they're finally getting some 
you know, some some relief. They're they're hit by a torpedo. They start to sink. So many of them are in this lower hold where they're trapped, including two of the main characters that we've been watching this story play out through. Um, the third, their friend Gibson, is up on the deck because he he's scared of being trapped, basically on a on a sinking ship. And um, rather than just jumping off once it's clear the ship's going down, he struggles up to a place where he can open the hatch to let these guys escape. Rather than you know looking out for his own neck. Farrier, who is Tom Hardy's character, he's flying. He loses two wingmen. He doesn't know how much fuel he has left, but he just decides to press on in his mission to support the uh, evacuation effort. You see, Mr. Dawson, as you already mentioned, he's going to take aid to the soldiers himself rather than just letting his boat be taken. I also think it's it's really uh, beautiful the way that Mr. Dawson and his elder son show real kindness and real tenderness toward Cillian Murphy's character, who is this, I think he's listed as the shivering soldier uh, in the in the credits, but they, they basically find him out on the open ocean, uh, sitting on top of a sunken ship. He's clearly shell-shocked and, and struggling with post-traumatic stress. At one point, in a panic moment, he strikes that boy George, who had joined the Dawson family in their efforts to go collect these men that they can fit on their boat. And George is hurt badly, struck blind, and he eventually dies. And while there's some frustration that's expressed, they even protect him from knowing the consequences of what he's done, because they don't want to pile on this guy who's obviously, who is obviously already uh, deeply wounded emotionally. And um, for me, the most powerful scene in this movie, it, it's this great revelation that Nolan pulls off. The ship that the Dawsons are piloting is loaded down with soldiers. They've rescued them from an oil slick, I think. They're, they've pulled them on board. They're heading back to England, and they hear the sound of a German uh, attack air, uh, aircraft. And Mr. Dawson puts his son at the rudder, and he tells him, basically, swerve when I tell you to. He, he's familiar enough with these aircraft that he knows they've got to drop their nose before they fire. And so he's waiting, waiting. You know, the, the aircraft is approaching. At the perfect moment, he tells his son to swerve. The the airplane misses with its shot, and it decides, never mind, I'm not going to waste my time trying that again, heads off. So Mr. Dawson's ingenuity has skillfully saved this boat full of soldiers. And on the way out, someone asks him, one of the soldiers asks him, hey, how did you know to do that? And he said, my son uh, is one of you guys. And they look back to the younger son, who's navigating the rudder, and they're like, there's no way you're a soldier. And he says, no, my older brother was killed three weeks into the war. He flew hurricanes. And so Dawson is this guy who has already suffered deeply uh, because of this war. And I, I think we would all feel like he was justified in saying, I've given enough. My family's given enough. But that's not the attitude he took. He took the attitude of contributing, serving, putting himself and his son at risk, uh, but but fighting for the greater good. And um, that revelation, and you know, it was already a noble act on Mr. Dawson's part to go after these troops, but to see it coming on the heels of such incredible loss really puts in front of you the beauty of serving your neighbor, even at great cost to yourself. So I was encouraged to see that there. Oh, yeah. I hate to make the, the darker turn, but question four from Turnout is, what's distorted, evil, and false? How can I subvert idolatry? So, Jared, show me some things that are that are evil and false and idolatrous in this in this film. Well, the, the biggest evil in this movie and the most historically inaccurate thing is the lack of prayer, the lack of dependence on God, especially in the 40s, right? Um, among the allies. Right. You know, for example, the general hopes for a miracle. I mean, he actually utters those words, but we don't see a single soldier praying at any point in the movie. Now, a British soldier closes his eyes, but we don't know if he's praying or not. And I'd be willing to wager that the odds of the odd soldiers escaping Dunkirk safely was greater than the odds of these soldiers being prayerless in Dunkirk. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're going back into history. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, e- even Nazis probably prayed. I mean, their 
probably a lot of Nazis that prayed. And so that's probably the most fictitious thing about this uh, otherwise historically accurate uh, picture, you know, the lack of dependence on God. It's This movie is solely dependent upon man. As secular humanism basically run amok, and um, it's not historically accurate for this reason. The picture, as you mentioned earlier, is that only man can save man in this movie, and the general hopes for a miracle, and man provides a miracle. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, you know, and I know, that man cannot provide miracles. Only God can. But God is strangely absent in this movie. I mean, in, in most cases, you know, I, I bet you money. So this past week, Hawaii accidentally sent out a text message to every cell phone on the island, an emergency message that popped up on phones that said a ballistic missile was headed toward Hawaii. Seek shelter. I mean, Jeff, did you see that? Oh, yeah, man. It, it's, it's a real wake-up <laughs> call about the state of the world politically right now. Like, Well, I mean, I bet you money, man, that people were praying. I bet they fell on their faces and no, they I, sought shelter. I actually I mean, read a, an article. I can't remember. It was from a local newspaper there. But they interviewed a woman who said that she began to ask God to forgive her of her sins. Oh, and that was wow. what the, that's what the crux of the article was about. Of course, that stuff is going to be happening. Of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in a, if they're dropping bombs, Nazis are dropping bombs on you, you're going to be praying. I mean, even if you claim to not be religious, there's gonna, there's a lot of people. I mean, my grandfather fought in World War II. And, and to see him kind of, I mean, I realize it's uh, the Amer- Americans. He, you know, My grandfather was an American, not British, but he was an ally. And I mean, this isn't the 21st century. You're going back to World War II and acting like these allied soldiers aren't praying in the midst of overwhelming, insurmountable odds. And they're they're longing for a miracle, but they're not praying to God for one. It's just, well, it's baloney is what it is. Right, right. I, I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of speculation online about why Nolan is so conspicuously non-religious in his films. He's also conspicuously non-political. Uh, again, Interstellar is the one possible exception to that principle, but that's that's a feature of his works. And I would love to sit down and ask him his thoughts on religion, You know, his thoughts on trying to tell a realistic tale where religious elements have been stripped out, why he even thinks that's a possible project when it's obviously not. The other thing I would want to point out is that he's missing, regardless of his reasons, he's missing out that it is the image of God within man, and it is the active grace of God, even to people who are not part of his church, that compels men to act in the way that basically accomplished the Dunkirk uh, miracle. Now, I'm not going to say that everyone who came over there was operating intentionally as a Christian, but I am going to say that every good gift comes down from uh, God the Father, and that you can't understand this tale. As beautiful as it is, you can't understand this tale without reference to the God who, through his his image given to his creatures and through his common grace to those same creatures causes people to do good to their neighbor. It, it, you just It's like taking a third of the, I mean, more than a third, but it's just taking a huge chunk of the film and throwing it away, a huge chunk of the story and discarding it. Mm-hmm. Of, of course, it you're, you're going to come off with less than the full story. Right. Absolutely. And not only that, but Nolan probably doesn't realize this, but it's the fingerprints of God in his movies that draws people in. I mean, sure. the reason why he is so popular is because of his excellence in his craft. And where does that excellence come from? And why do people like it? I mean, there are, there are other directors. That it's a, it's amazing the, the stories that he weaves and, and how he presents scenes in such a way that you feel like you're in the movie. You feel like you're experiencing um, what the actors are experiencing. Not only that, but what the what I, more, more of the characters are experiencing, not the actors, right? Um, I mean, it, it's amazing what he is able to do 
and then to leave God out when it's precisely God, um, God's fingerprints and God's, um, the, the like you said, the image of God in him that draws people into his movies. The common grace that is present there is why people are watching. Sure. I, I'll go uh, another step on the on the path you're carving out for us there. Um, it is the paradigm of God coming down to rescue the helpless that gave the British people of the 1940s and the Americans watching this movie in 2017 the category of the goodness of self-sacrifice on behalf of someone else. I mean, this movie mm-hmm. only works and the events of history only happen because the two cultures uh, that are experiencing experiencing you know what happened either the the Brits going to to save the soldiers or the people like you and I watching this movie with real appreciation it only happens because we're playing off a you know a cachet of centuries of Christian worldview it, this is not the sort of action and it's certainly not the sort of art that is produced by a culture uh, that that exists around our globe and has certainly existed in history built on the idea that the individual's success is all that matters. We like this movie, and those people got in boats purely because God came into history and rescued people. They may not be aware of that as they're you know firing up their engines and firing mm-hmm. up their Blu-ray players, but it's the cachet of our culture playing mm-hmm. off of what Jesus did that, that shapes every bit of the beauty of the actions of Dunkirk and, and what Nolan's trying to capture with his camera. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a, a good place to transition into question number five. How does the gospel apply here? You know, as much as this movie gets right, it leaves God out almost entirely. And like you said, God is mentioned in a quote from Churchill in passing. And the truth is that war has a way of humbling us um, or fear has a way of humbling us. Like you, you're talking about even even with the threat that happened in Hawaii, you know, the, I think it was 38 minutes, if I'm not mistaken, between um, in Hawaii when that wrong message was given to the entire island that a missile's coming to when they corrected it was like 38 minutes later. And so you had this fear and you had this, like you were talking about that lady praying uh, for God to forgive her her sins. You know, prayer in most war movies, it's shown because, I mean, it's life or death. And uh, I think that's accurate. That's believable. And so I don't find that believable at all in this movie. And the concept of uh, secular humanism, you know, that, that man can save mankind, almost that man does not need God. Um, only God is sovereign, not the allies, not the Nazis. And if a man if a man needs a miracle, only God can bring it. And when I think of war and I think about being outnumbered, you know, concerning this movie, I think of a Christian's plot living in a sinful world. Like you were talking about the the uh, the place that they're wanting to go is home. Um, you know, we're called pilgrims in this world. Christians are. And, you know, when I was seeing that, when I was seeing even the general looking through his binoculars and seeing Britain, you know, not far away, home not far away, but they couldn't get there. I think of like two Christian hymns uh, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and uh, the Christian Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And on Jordan, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand, the first verse says, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. And so there's this picture of uh, Israel on Jordan's stormy banks and us being true Israel or spiritual Israel in Christ. You know, we're, we're this is Jordan's stormy banks, this world, and we're peering over into the promised land in heaven. And we're, we're longing for that Canaan's fair and happy land where our possessions lie. Or, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. And 
then the next uh, verse says, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. And again, the same concept concerning us being in the true Israel, us being in Christ, we are in exile, this this world. And so this is him portrays us as in exile here. In other words, this is not our home. Similar to Dunkirk not being the home of those allied forces. You know, no, the, the British soldiers appear at this safety that they're longing for. They can see it, but they're not there yet. And so we're we're here kind of peering towards um, heaven, longing for that place. And the Redeemer is going to bring us there. You know, we're peering over into our true homeland. And much like in Dunkirk, you know, you can see it, but you can't reach it. But a rescue is coming. And we feel like the soldiers depicted in this movie sometimes as if we don't know that we've been rescued, that we are being rescued, and that we will be rescued by God the Son incarnate. You know, he, he'll come and set all things right. When will that be? It'll be soon. You know, and if he doesn't come in my lifetime, I will go to him. You know, so the Christian's plight is not like the plight in, in Dunkirk. The Dunkirk plight is this, will a rescue get here in time? But for the Christian, the rescue always gets here in time. Either Christ comes to us or we go to him. And it's all because of the grace of God from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Here, 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 here. You know, I owe that understanding to a friend of mine named Gavin who published an online review. It was just a couple sentences about Dunkirk that I happened to see when I was researching for this episode. He said, you know, that um, he's involved in ministry. He's a he's an RUF campus minister. And he, uh, he said, but that part about longing for home, just as you see home show up to rescue you, man, that'll preach. And uh, I told you at the beginning of this episode that this movie really grabs you by the lapels. That little sentence uh, also grabbed me by the lapels. And I'm thankful that my true home uh, was the kind of place where uh, the people there, particularly the one who makes it home, is willing and active in launching a rescue effort to bring me where uh, where he is. And appreciate Nolan, even if he's not understanding what he's doing, uh, putting the, the way that history reflects God's great story about Jesus, putting it right back in front of me. And I appreciate a good friend highlighting the theme for me as well. I mean, it's interesting that these soldiers long for home. And, um, you know, so they long for what you and I have right here in our everyday lives. And yet countless stories are written about the treachery that is found at home, you know, about the treachery that's found outside these walls. And not only that, but inside these walls, like I'm, I'm in my house right now. And uh, you think of all the stories um, that are in Hollywood about the dangers that are found at home. You think of our political landscape right now and the how how America is portrayed and how, I mean, it, it, it's not a safety, safe place. And it's interesting, these fellas longing for home, and I understand longing for home, and, and I, I love my country, um, but I'm a citizen of a, of a place that is truly home. Um, I'm a citizen of a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth that is truly safe. Amen. We're, we're talking about that as Christians, people who have been caught up in the way that God is building uh, a new humanity in Jesus Christ. Uh, I've mentioned on here before how much C.S. Lewis has shaped my thinking, particularly about things like movies and art. The the theme that we're highlighting here, this longing for home, Lewis would tell us is present not just in the believing heart, but it's it's the common experience of all men. He uses the German word, and, and my southern tongue is going to butcher this, but it's a sign soup. It's this idea of longing. And uh, if you'll bear with me for just a minute, I'm going to read a section where he talks about that from his sermon, The Weight of Glory, because I think he's right. And I think where he's right here is one of the ways that Christians who are talking with neighbors about the gospel, talking about the gospel with neighbors through movies like Dunkirk, ought to be aware of 
and have in their toolbox as um, yeah, an aid to getting the gospel through. So Lewis says, in speaking of this desire for our own far off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence, the secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty, and behave as if that had settled the matter. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I am trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And Lewis, I'm not going to go on further, but Lewis would tell you that one of the things that everybody's dealing with is this desire for a world that we've never lived in, but that we desire nonetheless. And to, to pull it more towards the church, he also says that a cure for worldliness is to have our hearts and our minds deeply rooted in the culture of heaven, and that it would be the standard of comparison that breaks our affections for this world. And so that, that idea of longing for home, I think, has a lot of use, as we've already been talking about it, for a Christian just delighting in Jesus and encouraging a brother or sister to do the same. But there's a lot of resources for your neighbor as well. Uh, they're looking for a world that they've never lived in. They're looking for a world that is just, where the innocent do not suffer. They're looking for a world where good comes to those who are not pursuing evil. They've never lived in that world, and yet they're looking for it. And I think Christians ought to be quick at hand to say, here's why. It's it's so embedded in you to want that kind of world. I think we've got the, the story for them, and it, it would hopefully be something that would help the gospel uh, to be seen as beautiful the way it objectively is. Amen. Amen. Last note here on how the gospel applies is I just want to note that the way home came to rescue these people who were longing for it transformed their identity, and it, it renewed their vitality. So you, you remember there at the very end when we see, I think, Alex and Tommy riding on the train. They get close to their station, and a little boy hands them a newspaper. And I, I think it's Tommy who says, I can't bear the thought of going home because they're going to they're gonna condemn us as cowards. And um, they go down the road a little ways, and there's a guy beating on the window, and, and they can't stand to look at him because they're mm. afraid of the criticism they're going to receive. And it turns out that these men have been received back not as cowards, but as heroes. And so mm-hmm. they are they are received with hospitality and joy. And we know because it ends on Churchill's speech, these guys are not coming home to sit and rest. Although as Christians, we know that that's ultimately the the end for believers uh, in the in the rescue effort that our home accomplished in our behalf. But in the interim period, these guys have brought home received well and renewed so that they can turn around and oppose evil afresh. And I think there's a lot of kind of picture there. there there's there's a grand picture there of people who are living in the already and the not yet. We have been rescued. We have been received into a new household. But the purpose is not yet for us to simply rest. The purpose is for us to continue uh, the efforts to see God's glory magnified in a fallen world, both by highlighting that glory, but also by opposing those things that would 
deny that God's glory is the is the main goal of all existence. Amen, man. So, folks, we encourage you to watch Dunkirk with these uh, caveats in mind. Sure. Jared, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. You can find me on my website, jaredmoore.exaltchrist.com. You can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. I have another podcast called All Truth is God's Truth. You can find it on um, iTunes and many other podcast platforms. All right. And you can find our podcast online at pccdpod.com. That'll give you links to our Twitter, our Facebook, and uh, you can it'll even give you links to streaming our episodes on Stitcher. One thing I want to highlight, if you're someone who makes use of Reddit, we have a subreddit that would be great for you to use to give us uh, you know, feedback, to give, to, to ask us questions, to give us pushback on our episodes. It's, it's just a discussion forum, free to be used. So if you're on Reddit, our subreddit is uh, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash pod. And so we put links to our episodes up there. You can jump in there and give your comments, or you can create new threads uh, about whatever you want to talk about. Again, just want to put a plug in. If you're willing to do so, uh, getting on iTunes, leaving us a five-star review would be much appreciated. Any review would be appreciated, but particularly those five stars. And uh, we thank you in advance if that's something you choose to do for us. Uh, Jared, next week we're talking about Moana. Moana. That's right. All right, man. So guys, uh, we will meet back with you next week to talk about the latest from Disney. Moana. Talk to you then. <laughs>